Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, Dice's podcast where we dig into the topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski. I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including taking the temperature of the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain technologists in a historically tight market, and much more. Our guest today is Manish Nawaryun Swame. He's an associate director at Kissflow, which is a builder of no and low-code platforms that enable business customers to build apps and workflows with a minimum of coding. He spent years refining how to use cutting-edge technologies to make things simpler for end-users. I wanted to talk to Manish because I've been fascinated by no and low-code tools for a long time. For businesses, no and low-code presents the tantalizing possibility of allowing employees who don't have a tech background to quickly spin up the apps and services they need. However, Many technologists are also concerned about how no and low-code workflows could potentially make it more confusing to manage an organization's tech stack. Let's listen to Manish and I hash out how these technologies could have a significant impact over the next several years. First of all, thank you for joining us. Um, the, the thing that I wanted to talk about today, I mean, for the last several years, there's been sort of the rise in low code and no code, you know, and I know at Kissflow that that's, that's what you do is, is, you know, kind of leveraging no code and low code to empower, I guess, tech workers, finance people, et cetera, in building apps and services without necessarily needing, you know, a kind of a full technology team to come in and build stuff. Um, mm. I guess I guess my question is the demand for low and no code is it going up exponentially? I mean, especially given sort of the demand for tech talent out there and how hard it is to find people to like build apps and everything like that. I mean, has it been really spiking up in the past couple of years, or has it been more kind of like a gradual rise? I'm just curious. Um, I, I want to say it's spiking up exponentially, uh, okay. especially in the last couple of years. Um, COVID sort of accelerated. Um, the demand for low-code, no-code platforms as well, right? So um, it, there's a there's a Gartner report that says um, low-code, no-code development platforms that gr- are growing at more than 20% uh, per year, and it's predicted to um, uh, be adopted by more than 50% of the medium to large-scale companies uh, by 2023, right? So th- the reason it's exploding this way is because low-code, no-code is more a design paradigm than an offering itself, right? It's sort of the next logical step in the, in the evolution of coding for automation, right? So if you can develop faster, test fewer components, deploy more efficiently, and do all that and still reduce cost, nobody wants to lose out on that, right? It's, it's just better technology, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's only a matter of time before more and more organizations get on board the low-code, no-code bandwagon, if you will. Yeah. I mean, in terms of your customers and the people you work with, I mean, is it is it generally, I guess, like, a, is, is, is the learning curve, is, is it generally pretty rapid? I mean, given all the tools and services and things people already work with and, you know, kind of the amount of tech literacy that a lot of people have, I mean, is it something that people kind of grasp intuitively and start to operate pretty much immediately? Or is, is it still kind of in that phase where it, it takes a little bit for people to kind of just grasp the, the basic concepts and kind of work with it effectively? 
That, that's the idea. Um, so uh, in terms of maturity of low-code, no-code platforms, there are some platforms which are just low-code and are aimed at accelerating development for IT folks. Right? It's just making, job, making the job easier for IT folks. And then you go one step ahead and then uh, offer no-code uh, solutions, which is essentially saying not just accelerating, um, no need to do any sort of coding, uh, we give you a graphical user interface with drag and drop components, just drag and drop stuff and configure and, and publish it. And, and then the next step, you know, one step ahead of no code is what we call citizen development, right? It's no code, but also for non-IT folks. So depending on the maturity of your platform and Kisflow offers all these three, right? It mm -hmm. offers a low code um, sort of development studio for IT folks. It offers a no-code visual studio for both IT folks and for someone with zero coding experience. So depending on the maturity, um, you know, you can scale pretty rapidly and get up to speed uh, in terms of uh, developing apps pretty rapidly with the platform. Yeah. It's a couple of years back, I took this briefing with Microsoft and they were talking about Power Apps, which was a drag and drop, no code, low code platform for building apps. And they were talking about how it, the most prominent case they were telling me about was how security guards at Heathrow um, were using it to build some sort of mobile app that was helping them check flyers and baggage and things like that, just basically to make their workflows mm. more efficient and so on. And the, the senior management at Heathrow didn't even realize they were doing it until they were, you know, until these apps were out in the wild and, and the security teams were using them and so on. And it, it seemed that, I mean, when I was talking to the Microsoft folks about it, they, they, they alluded to a lot of push-pull between citizen developers, the employee developers, the, the non-tech developers, whatever you want to call them, the people using these tools, and then sort of the traditional developers and so on at these companies where suddenly there was kind of like issues with workflow and so on. And it seemed that in the case of power apps, at least, you know, they got the technology was one thing they had figured out how to create this like really intuitive, simple drag and drop system to build these apps. But the harder part was sort of the permissions and controls on power apps that would sort of allow these people to exercise their creativity and build the apps they needed to build well, not sort of wrecking the tech stack and the workflow and everything else that like the regular developer core at these companies had set up. Do you find, I mean, is that one thing I've wondered ever since I, I had that conversation with them was, is that sort of a persistent issue with no code and low code that there's sort of, you know, the, the traditional developers on these teams at these companies, like they get irritated or suddenly they have this complication. I mean, how is that? It seems like something that's really nuanced. It needs a lot of finesse in order to work itself out. Yeah, I mean, see, uh, when you're opening up stuff with low-code, no-code, you're going towards this um, notion of democratizing automation, right? To your mm -hmm. earlier point about a security guard being able to automate something himself, uh, right? Instead of going through five or six layers to ultimately reach IT and get some stuff automated for him. So when you want, when you're aiming towards democratizing automation to that scale, obviously there's going to be hurdles um, in the transition journey. Right. Yeah. So the the it it sort of becomes imperative for organizations um, onboarding low code no code technologies to take a structured and strategic approach uh, instead of just having them um, onboarded in silos. Right. So you you take a strategic approach. You make sure there are some guardrails in place. Um, you know. In fact, we actually recommend a four pronged approach to setting up 
some sort of natural guardrails that will help ensure security and, and even prevent any sort of ambiguity between internal teams. Right? Yeah. Uh, it, you go through guardrails like this, set up the framework, and then sort of unleash um, uh, citizen developers, uh, even IT folks, and other folks who are closest to the work that is getting done to sort of automate uh, the work themselves. Um, right? So I, I guess it, it boils down to how efficiently the organizations have put up that set of initial guardrails in place. Um, to, mm-hmm. to my earlier, earlier point about this four-pronged approach, uh, you know, the, the first thing is they have to invest in comprehensive education and training. Right? Okay. Leaders should sort of intentionally de- <clears throat> deploy these local local tools, <clears throat> complete with well-considered training sessions on security and governance best practices. And the, the second is laying out a strategic vision instead of a tactical approach. Um, right? mm-hmm. And the third one is building security with layered permissions. Uh, like you said, authorization and authentication are key factors uh, when it comes to rolling out uh, applications or systems at a large scale. So that should be taken care of. And the fourth and the most important thing is also to keep track of integrations with uh, other systems and other data sources within the organization. Right? It has to learn to coexist with a, with a, a multitude of other applications within the organization. So, yeah, so that sort of guardrails... Uh, you know, if you put them in place, then I think you set up a very good foundation for success. Yeah, I was I was talking to our cybersecurity. I, m- I mentioned that I was I was going to be chatting with you about this and with one of our uh, cybersecurity writers, and he was incredibly fascinated with it. And he was making the assumption in terms of the the cybersecurity element of it that you still have either sysadmin sysadmin or whoever is is kind of in charge of the tech stack and so on to be able to juggle the the access permissions and so on in terms of databases and whatnot for these apps and that would sort of be the vital thing that you kind of he was hoping that it was sort of baked in at the beginning that you know that these apps don't you know or these frameworks don't you know sort of treat security as an afterthought and it sounds like in, i mean from what you're saying it sounds like that's really carefully considered from the beginning like this needs to be integrated in a layered way or else it's just not happening yeah, that, that's that's very true, um, right? And it, it, that's why there needs to be a sort of proactive approach to putting these guardrails in place instead of reactive, um, right? Before rolling out the low-code, no-code platform, by virtue of just opening it up for everyone, right? If you want to ensure that it doesn't turn into the Wild West, sort of mm-hmm. put some guardrails and frameworks in place and then unleash everyone to work on top of these uh, frameworks and guardrails, right? That way, uh, they're able to develop um, uh, apps and, and, and publish them at a rapid pace. But at the same time, they're working off of a solid framework, which also ensures uh, security and data in- integrity. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes total sense. I guess, I mean, the other question, as I've been talking to people about low and no code, is that, I mean, you know, over and beyond power apps, I mean, for example, Google has a, I, th- I think it's a low code as opposed to a no code platform for simple game building. I've seen a couple of other examples as well as of, um, you know, kind of the, the the technology being put into place. Where's the ceiling for all this? I mean, do, I mean, you obviously there's enor- systems of enormous complexity out there and like apps that are absolutely kind of huge, you know, and then on the other side of the scale, you have like kind of very simple apps that are relatively easy to build. How high up do you think no code and low code will eventually go. I mean, how far can a citizen developer, do you think, theoretically take app building before, you know, they would 
I guess, theoretically need to step aside and let a professional development team kind of take over? I mean, like how, how big could this get, in other words? I, I think um, it, it's an ever-changing landscape, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, and, and I want to sort of take this analogy of data processing before the days of Excels and spreadsheets, right? A couple of decades back, data processing was sort of exclusive to a set of folks working with the mainframe systems um, mm-hmm. and, and pulling out data, right? If you wanted to know your sales data uh, last quarter, you had to, you know, they called it batch processing. You had to work with these um, exclusive IT guys, uh, submit a request, and then a week later you would get a report, right? So data processing was not a democratized um, uh, offering the way it is today, right? Mm-hmm. And what the IT guys did pretty much was a lot of mundane tasks, but only they could understand the mainframe system. So they were the ones pulling out all this data. Right? And yeah. from there, over decades, we have sort of grown, right? Spreadsheets came into picture and suddenly, you know, data processing was just completely democratized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could create a pivot table instead of looking through columns and rows and cross-matching references. What that enables the developers to do or the IT folks to do is to look at sort of higher value problem solving, right? They moved on to statistical modeling, mathematical and financial modeling and stuff like that, uh, which really needed their expertise as against working on mundane tasks and simpler tasks, which need did not really need their expertise. It's the same way with the low-code, no-code um, technologies right now, right? And that is why I'm saying it's more a design paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. As more and more components fall into the low-code, no code space and and you know the the developers are just freed up to uh, um, develop more uh, complex solutions you know look into something like ai leveraging ai and then coming up with the next best action writing some sort of complex algorithms um, you know for the end users to uh, using predictive analytics and stuff like that right so i don't think there's there's finite set of solutions um, that low-code, no-code might eat into. It, there's an infinite set of requirements out there, right? IDC predicted a report recently saying approximately 500 million apps are going to get built in the next five years or so by 2027. Well, World over, we only have, like, what, 25 million developers? Mm-hmm. Right? So any large organization, there's a huge backlog of IT tasks. So it's just offloading all those tasks and getting more hands on deck while moving on to the more complex tasks, um, which is what we essentially call as higher value uh, problem solving, right? So it's, it's an ever-changing landscape, um, but I feel like it's, it's just a change for the better. So do, do you think that, I mean, when I talk to developers about this and software engineers and so on, they're not they're not fearful for their jobs, obviously, for all the reasons you described. I mean, you know, there's 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 an incredible growth within software development. There's always going to be a need to tackle kind of the high level abstractions and the high level problems and so on. But some of them sort of wonder whether companies are going to start, I guess, slowing the hiring of software engineers and software developers in favor of this, you know, the, this particular framework and sort of empowering citizen developers to, to use these tools and these frameworks and so on to build apps. Do you think that's going to Pass. I mean, do you think that's something where we're looking at, you know, some companies sort of favoring citizen developers over kind of the hiring of, of professional developers? Or do you think it's always going to sort of be there's always going to be this hunger for 
sort of professional technologists and, you know, this is not going to kind of achieve that level. So, so think about this, right? Let's say you have um, 35 professional developers in your organization and mm-hmm. 65 non-IT folks who we have recognized as citizen developers that can come in and take part in the uh, automation process using low-code, no-code technologies or using citizen development technologies, right? The mm-hmm. number of developers is not going to reduce because more folks, more non-IT folks are coming in um, to try and co-create these apps. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is instead of focusing, let's say, for example, on building a simple form, the developers will sort of now focus on something like writing a predictive algorithm and, and, and figuring out what the customer wants in the next quarter, right? Mm. Or writing a more complex UI, which is extremely intuitive to uh, a, a customer logging into his online banking portal, for example, right? So they're just going to be freed up to look at more use cases, which are way more complex and cannot be done uh, by uh, non-IT folks. Uh, but, and, and from what we have seen in the industry, especially in the recent years, the IT folks and the developers do not actually fear, um, you know, losing jobs because citizen development is coming into play. Uh, mm-hmm. Their only concern, the IT leadership's concern is that uh, IT governance will go for a toss and shadow IT might become a problem if you open up development to everyone else. Right? Mm-hmm. But even the IT leaders are slowly recognizing that low-code, no-code is sort of the way to go. It's here to stay. It's just the next logical step when it comes to coding for automation. So the, the, the sort of paradigm changes and it, it becomes imperative for organizations to just put proper governance in place, assuming that low-code, no-code is going to get onboarded and more and more citizen development is going to happen within the organization. So in terms of shadow IT, I guess it, this sort of loops back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of guardrails. Just as long as sort of there's transparency and guardrails and so on, does that solve the shadow IT problem or is it is it more complex than that potentially? It, it, it does. It does, right? Um, if you put that sort of governance in place and clearly call out what is the scope for development for non-IT folks or, or citizen development and while they're developing, what sort of governance practices should they follow? Right? Mm-hmm. And also... Initially, before rolling this out, if you set these guardrails, you're also going to assign IT folks to govern individual modules, right? For example, every business work group can have one IT person mentoring them towards their development journey, right? Towards Mm -hmm. automating apps as citizen developers. So once you put that sort of governance in place, the IT teams are going to be more than happy uh, if the citizen developers can take part and, and take some stuff off their workload. Uh, right, because any large organization that you go to, if you ask the CTO um, mm-hmm. why the core systems are not revamped, for example, he's going to tell you my IT team has a backlog for the next two years, yeah. and it just yeah. keeps adding to the backlog. Um, right, so they'll be more than happy to offload some of that work um, instead of offloading that to vendors. If they can offload offload that to citizen developers, they're going to be more than happy about it. That makes, yeah, that makes absolute sense. I mean, in, in terms of your, your clients and your customers and so on, are you seeing that as, as these tools are sort of implemented and integrated into workflows that there's more interest among these companies to 
train workers in software development or offer classes or the opportunity to go out and kind of just learn more about kind of the abstract principles underneath this? Or is, is there more sort of an impetus to provide kind of that training and education? I mean, are, are you seeing sort of a halo effect around it where, you know, people are trying to become more technologically literate, where companies are funding more of, of education in that direction? Or is that not happening? It, it, I would say it, it's a mix of two things, Nick, right? So the first thing is the companies are working to make non-IT folks more aware of these kind of technologies that are in place today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just making them aware that you don't have to be an expert or a professional developer to come in and automate a workflow. We have got these um, innovative technologies which are intuitive enough for you to you know, without any coding experience, try and automate stuff. So that mm-hmm. sort of awareness uh, is uh, picking up uh, on one side. On the other side, the low-code, no-code platforms, Kissflow, for example, our, our CEO keeps uh, reiterating this, right? The end goal of these low-code, no-code platforms is to make it as simple as an iPhone app, right? Yeah. When you When you install an iPhone app, no one really trains you to use it. You just intuitively figure out how to use it, right? Mm-hmm. The low-code, no-code tools today in the market, Kiss, Kissflow, for example, the core philosophy itself is the Kiss philosophy, right? Which is essentially keeping it simple and smart. Yeah. So the interface in Kissflow, the no-code interface in Kissflow is not something that you need to be trained on. You intuitively know how to sort of put a workflow together and then publish it uh, for general consumption. Right. So that's that's on the that's also picking up on the other other side from the technology world. They're making it more and more easier so that there's very little training involved. Uh, there's very little skill set involved when it comes to uh, development. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. The um, I mean, so what's the future for you? I mean, like what's 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 what projects are you? I mean, obviously, you can't talk about everything, you know, given the proprietary roadmap and all that. But I'm just curious, kind of on a more top level? Like, I mean, what, what interests you about the future of this? Like, what are you exploring right now? I mean, where do you think has promise with regard to this particular segment? I, I think it's um, the variety of use cases that we could target within an organization uh, is exponentially expanding, mm-hmm. um, right? Because, uh, for example, Kissflow is a platform and not a solution, um, right? So, mm-hmm. When it comes to low-code, no-code, or citizen development as a design paradigm, let's say today, out of 100 use cases uh, or out of 100 applications, 20 can be done in low-code, 40 can be done in no-code, and then the remaining 30 can be done by citizen developers. Let's say you have a split like that. Um, As we progress, as we evolve as, as, as products, what we're aiming is to push more and more from the low-code category into the no-code category and more from no-code into citizen development category. Mm-hmm. What this does is the 100 use cases that are in your backlog currently, you're pushing and offloading more and more into citizen developers' uh, queue. And so you, as an IT developer, are working on transformative use cases instead of just fixing existing stuff. You're thinking about next-gen technology. You're thinking about how do I, as a business organization, transform using cutting-edge technology. And you're working on those sort of use cases, right? Which is essentially why IT organizations were put in place uh, in a lot of uh, uh, you know, non-IT 
companies in the first place to to really transform and and not to just focus on existing operations or mundane automation activities it's truly to understand the technology out there and transform uh, you know into into a next gen sort of technology ecosystem so uh, that's that's what excites us uh, you know how much can we offload from the it teams and how much can we enable the it teams um, uh, to to embark on this transformative journey as against just mundane automation work yeah oh it's fascinating i mean it, it really does seem like it's the future so i mean it's 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 pretty incredible um yeah thank you for talking to me i mean this is that that was that was all the the questions that i had so i mean thank you for taking the time i know that i know that you're enormously swamped today sure yeah um, uh, thanks Nick. thanks for uh, taking the time as well um hopefully we'll yeah. connect again in the future and that's it for the episode folks as manish explained no and low code could have a sizable impact on how companies build and manage apps and services if this technology isn't on your radar well it should be because companies large and small are currently developing all kinds of tools that will make it easier for citizen developers to spin up the software they need for their jobs. Here's one key takeaway. I've heard a few technologists say they're fearful that no and low-code tools could potentially take their jobs. That doesn't seem like something that will come to pass, at least not for a very long time. If anything, no and low-code tools could free up technologists' bandwidth to focus on company strategy and more complex challenges, which, frankly, is why a lot of technologists got into the game in the first place. That being said, no and low code is very much here to stay. From simple games to apps for airport security guards, these tools will appear in more and more organizations and industries as time goes on. If you're a technologist, it'll pay to become familiar with how no and low code works, and if necessary, how you can proactively integrate them into your current tech stack. We'll see you next time. And remember, DICE is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles. And for technologists, the best place to grow your tech career.